Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to do Revelation 14, 15, and 16. That's what we're doing today. Big chunk. Okay. Why don't you start us off, Bryce? Why don't you talk a little bit about what's happening in chapter 14? Okay, I love chapter 14. If you've been listening to our last couple of podcasts, we talked about the beast and the world, and sometimes we get beat up. And I I remind you, chapter 13, verse 7, the whole purpose of the beast is to make war with the saints and to overcome them. It is the purpose of the dragon, the beast, and the other beast to destroy the saints. And some of us are getting beat up. And I know some of you just get beat up by the beast constantly from political to social to so many different ways. And the temptation is, well, if I just put the image of the beast on, then he'll leave me alone and I can play in his playground. If I just do what they want me to do, if I just act like them, then they won't pick on me or bully me. If I just put the east, if, you know, if I just give in, If I say what the world wants me to say, I'll be acceptable to the world and I can play in their playground. Well, chapter 14 is an image, is is the vision of what's going on in Zion. If the world doesn't make a room for you, if the world won't let you play in their playground, don't worry because you have a welcome place in Zion. And chapter 14 is a look into Zion. So chapter 14, verse 1, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000 having the Father's name written in their forehead. So we're going to look at those who are with Jesus. Who is with Jesus in his church, in his kingdom, in his place in Zion? And in contrast to those who have the image of the world on their forehead, these people have the Father's name on their forehead. Now, we've talked a lot about that, putting the name of the Father on your forehead, wearing Jesus, acting like Christ. Every sacrament we covenant to take, that we are willing to take upon us the name of Christ. And in essence, to put it right there on our forehead. I remind you that in Egypt, what saved them from death was to mark their house, basically on the forehead, to mark their house with the blood of the Lamb. And what saves us in our latter days is when we mark ourselves with Jesus. But I'd like to focus, you know, as we talk about those who are with Christ and what are the qualities of those who are with Christ, I want to focus on verse 3. Throughout Revelation, this concept of singing a new song comes up. They sang, as it were, a new song. In chapter 15, verse 3, it's called the Song of Moses. The righteous know the Song of Moses. Now, back in chapter 14, here's what's interesting. In the rest of verse 3, no man could learn the song, but the 144,000 which were redeemed of the earth. No one can know the song, but the righteous know the song. So one of the keys, will you be with Jesus in the millennium, is do you know the song? So where does the song come from? Now, let me point out, we have the words. Spoiler alert, we have the words to the song. Ready? I'm going to tell you the words to the song. If you want to turn to Doctrine and Covenants section 84, you can see the words to the song that we will sing when Jesus comes. And there they are, word for word. Doctrine and Covenants section 84, starting in verse 99, 
and then it presents it in poetic form. Notice that the text even changes and presents it in poetic form. Let me go back to verse 98. Until all shall know me who remain, even from the least unto the greatest, and shall lift, be lifted up with the knowledge of the Lord, and shall see eye to eye, and shall lift up their voice together, and with the, and with the voice together sing this new song. And then there are the words. So, what don't we know? We don't know the music. We don't know the tune. And according to Revelation, no one can teach you the tune. So where do you learn the tune? Well, that phrase, calling it the Song of Moses, comes from Exodus 15. When the Israelites were freed from Egypt, they sang the Song of Moses. Where did they learn the tune? They were freed from Egypt, slavery, and as they rejoiced, they sang the song of Moses. Do you see the connection? Now, I think we know the name of the tune. Ready? I'm going to go out on a limb. I think the scriptures reveal the name of the tune. Turn with me to Alma chapter 14. I think Alma reveals the name of the song. We've got the words in section 84. We know what kind of occasions bring it out. Alma chapter 14 I think, sorry, not 14, 5. Why am I in 14? That's Alma chapter 5, verse 14. He says, have you been born of God? Have you received his image in your countenance? So there's the mark in the forehead. But I want to focus on verse 26. I think Alma gives us the name of the song. He says, if you have experienced a change of heart, if you have felt to sing the song, of redeeming love. There, I think, is the title. These people with Jesus are singing the song of redeeming love. And you learn it in verse 26 when you experience a change of heart. Let me show you. You want a front row seat to watch a man learn the song? I'm going to show you a man learning the song right in front of you. Ready? Turn to Alma chapter 36, and let's watch Alma learn the song. And you tell me if you know the song. You tell me if you can sing the song of redeeming love. Now, this is Alma before his conversion. This is sinful Alma. Verse 12, he was racked with eternal torment. He was harrowed up. His soul was harrowed up to the greatest degree and racked with all his sins. And everyone knows what that feels like. We've all sinned. We've all done wrong. We all know that torment. Verse 13, he was tormented with the pains of hell. Now, I want to focus on verse 14. Verse 14, he says, the idea, the thought of coming into the presence of my God did rack my soul with inexpressible horror. Would you remember that? The thought of facing God filled him with absolute horror. Verse 15, he'd rather become extinct. But then he repents. Verse 17, I remembered also to have heard my father prophesying unto the people concerning the coming of Jesus Christ, a son of God, to atone for the sins of the world. And when my mind caught hold upon this, I cried within my heart, O Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me. And O brothers and sisters, that's the moment. That's called repentance. 
And every one of us needs to have that moment where we say, Oh Jesus, thou Son of God, have mercy upon me. And when we do that, he snatches us. He snatches us. And he saves us. Verse 19, I could remember my pains no more. I was no longer harrowed up by the memory of my sins. What joy, what marvelous light my soul did fill. Now, do you remember verse 14? The thought of facing God filled him with inexpressible horror. And then in verse 15, he sees God. But after being cleansed by the atoning sacrifice of Christ, this time he's not tormented. Tell me what he feels. In verse 22, instead of wishing he were extinct, when he does see God, he sees angels singing praises to him. And then this beautiful phrase, my soul did long to be there. He learned the song. He learned the song. You learn the tune when Jesus redeems you. When he snatches you from hell, when he frees you from the torment of sin, you learn the song when you've been changed and redeemed by him. That's the song. The song of Moses is when they sang when Moses and God led them out of slavery in Egypt. And as they rejoiced, as they sang praises to their God, they sang the song of Moses. The people who are with Jesus are singing this song. The, singer, the song of redeeming love. It's the song that our heart sings because we love him. Because he changed me. Because he made a difference. Now, if I can just point to one of the most beautiful moments that I believe is coming. Turn with me to Doctrine and Covenants section 128. Tell me this isn't going to be an absolute beautiful moment where we all sing the song of redeeming love. Now, who's going to start it? Where does the song begin? Start in verse 22, section 128, verse 22. Who sings it? Remember, whose story the book of Revelation is telling? It's the earth. The earth starts the song. So, section 128, verse 22. Brethren, shall we not go on in such such a cause? Go forward and not backward. Courage, brethren, and on. On to the victory. Let your hearts rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Let the earth break forth into singing. Someday the earth will sing the song of redeeming love when she's been changed and cleansed and saved from iniquity. The earth will break into singing. And then who comes next? All the dead who are freed from the prison of death because of the love of an atoner, a savior. They will sing the song of redeeming love. Verse 23, the mountains will join in. So now we've got the earth, the dead, the mountains, and then the valleys, and then the seas, and then the dry lands, and then the rivers, the brooks, and the rills, and the woods, and the trees, and the rocks, and the sun, and the moon, and the morning stars shall sing together, and then all the sons of God shall shout for joy. That's the moment. That's the moment we look forward to. Now, we have that moment every day of our life inside our heart when we rejoice over the atoning sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, do you know the song? 
And like Alma, I ask, if you have ever felt to sing the song of redeeming love, can you feel so now? Keep that song in your heart. That's what gets you with Jesus. That's what's happening. Revelation chapter 14, these people who are with Christ sing the new song. Um, one more thought about them, verse back in chapter 14, verse 4. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. There's a beautiful image in the Book of Mormon. We often talk about being born again and what that means. When Jesus ended animal sacrifice in 3 Nephi, he said, No more will you give me the shedding of blood. This is Third Nephi chapter 9, verses 19 and 20. He says, I don't want any more shedding of blood. No more animal sacrifices. What I want is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And so I ask, how do we break our heart? What does that mean to break my heart? Well, we break our hearts like we break a horse. When you break a horse, you don't break a horse's will. You don't break a horse's desires or his attitude, what you break is the idea in his head that he's better off on his own. You break his wildness. You break his desire to live his life his way under his rules because horses will live much better if they live under our guidance and our house and our protection and we take care of them. And the moment a horse realizes that, he'll live better. But the horse has this silly idea that it's better off on his own. So imagine a, a wild horse with a rope around it. I, I somehow managed to get a rope around its neck. Now tell me what that horse is going to do with that rope. It's going to pull against it with all its might. And that rope is the symbol of my allegiance to my master. And right now it's taunt because I'm pulling against it. And some of us do that with God. We are pulling our rope against God. But the moment the horse realizes that it's better off under the care of a loving master who will take care of it and feed it, eventually what could you do with that rope? Eventually the master could lay the rope on his shoulder and walk. And the horse would follow. In the Book of Mormon, when the anti-Nephi-Lehi's buried their weapons of war, I don't know if it's a slip in the text or if they meant to do this, but what the text says is that they buried their weapon, the weapons of their rebellion. They buried the weapons of their rebellion. And that's what we need to do when we come unto God. We need to bury the weapons of our rebellion. We need to lay the rope on his shoulder and say, Lord, wherever you go, I will follow voluntarily. Whatever you want me to do, I will do. And so these people who are with Jesus in Zion are singing the song of redeeming love and they follow him whithersoever he wants to go. Now, just Contrast that with everyone else. If you'll go on in chapter 15 and 16, the rest, no matter how bad it gets, they won't repent. I'm in chapter 16, verse 9, they repented not to give him glory. Verse 11, they repented not of their deeds. They will not repent. They will not acknowledge Jesus in their life. And so that kind of is setting us up. Which side of that group do you want to be? Which one do you want to be? Do you want to be those who wear the mark of the Father 
who sing the song of redeeming love and follow him whether he, whether he goes, are you one of those that wears the mark of the world so that I can play in the world's playground and I just will not let Jesus into my life? That's my two cents, Mike. Awesome. I, I like to look at this as uh, a temple text as well. So in the 14th chapter, they have his name in their forehead. And then in verse two, it says they heard the voice from heaven as a voice of many waters and great thunder. So once again, we're, this is Psalm 29. God's throne is on the waters. We're in heaven. We're in the temple in heaven. And we got the harpers harping, right? In verse two, and they sing the song. I'm going to put this out there. There's two victory songs uh, in the Bible that come to my mind right now in Exodus 15. And some call it the song of Miriam or the song of Moses or the song of the sea, probably the oldest text in the, in the Hebrew Bible. And then you have the victory song of Deborah. And these are, we're back to this, this myth, this, and when I say myth, I just mean story. We're back to this deep rooted story in Christianity and Judaism and all religions and all cultures of chaos and God is victorious. But in those two biblical texts I referenced in Judges and in Exodus, it's the woman who leads, the woman who leads the singing, which reminds me of Psalm 68, verse 24. They've seen the goings of God, even the goings of my God, my King, in the sanctuary. The singers went before, the players on instruments followed after, among them the damsels. Uh, First Temple Jewish, or First Temple Israelite religion the song was led by the women. So this is a, definitely a temple text. 14.8, Babylon has fallen, the great city. We're going to probably spend some time in Revelation 17 on this. But it does fall. So that's a big message of the book of Revelation, as John is essentially saying, don't worry, it's going to be okay. In the temple, in our temple and in first temple, there's a, another message. And it's this message of during the time of chaos, the gods are going to send messengers. And so I'm going to reference the hymn of the pearl. I think this is probably a, a safe place to go. The young lad is off and he's, he's lost his way. He's forgotten his father and mother and his father and mother send divine messengers. In some of the extra biblical literature, we read about Abraham, how these three messengers from the heavens come and try to point him to heaven. Notice Revelation 14, um, six and seven. And I'm going to read this on a ton of different levels. But first, Verse six, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him that made heaven and the earth and the sea and the fountain of waters. Okay. As a member of the church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, this is a softball pitch. Bryce, what would you say that angel is? This is Moroni. Yeah, it's Moroni. Yeah. It's the same one who sits on top of every single temple tooting the horn. Ta-da! I mean, it's on, it's on a lot of our temples. And if you remember our podcast we did a little bit ago with trumpets, the trumpet is one of its purposes is to announce war or announce the king's coming. So I like this as Moroni. Could this be Joseph Smith? I don't remember where I read it, but I read one time where Joseph's like, yeah, of course. But could this be your son or daughter on a mission? I like that. I like that. I like multiple reading of the text. And, and this is hearkening back to Malachi. It's Malachi 3.1. Behold, I will send my messenger and he'll prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to the temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come 
saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? If you remember, this is the question at the end of Revelation 6. Who's going to stand? Who's going to be there? I think one way to read this is those that listen to the messengers. So clearly, I mean, if you've read Matthew, clearly John's that messenger. He is the messenger that's been sent, the Malachim. Malachi is a, when we're penning with the word Malachim, the Malachim are the angels or the messengers. That's what an angel is. It's a messenger. It's a, it's a herald. And there's that passage in Isaiah about the, the feet of him that publishes peace. Anciently, if we went to war, the first messenger back that says, Hey, we won. We would shower them with gifts and praise them. I think that's what's going on in Revelation 14. In other words, in the temple context, we're sending messengers from the heavens to get everybody ready. So I just like the, all the different ways we can read 14, 6, and 7, however you want to read it. I don't think there's one reading of the text that is you know, sufficient or the, the end all and be all. But I really like that. The other thing I want to mention is briefly is verse 12. And those two, well, the one word, there's really two words there, but it's in section 21. Verse 12 of Revelation 14 says, here is the patient, patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments. In the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord tells us this. Speaking about the prophet of the restoration, um, the Lord says in 21, uh, there shall be a record kept among you, and it that shall be called a seer, a translator, a prophet, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an elder of the church. So this is the Lord talking to Joseph about Joseph. But then look in verse 5. For his word you shall receive as if from mine own mouth and all patience and faith. And I just like that because you have to have patience and you have to have faith. It's just not all going to be laid out. It's not all going to be spelled out. And so I think that's one of the things in our dispensation, but also in John's, that being a saint, being one of these people that follow the Savior is certainly going to test your patience. And today in the media, there's always something, right? But today in the media, there's a lot of things that are testing the the patience and faith of the saints. But I don't think it's any different today than it was in 80 AD or 90 AD, whenever this text was written, it has perpetual relevance. Anyway, so that's what I do with 14. Bryce, do we want to spend a little bit on 15, 16? Um, just to point out, it, it really is just kind of the transition. We've got to cleanse this thing up. And so as we get closer and closer to the end coming, it's just kind of the vials. There's seven vials that we pour out. It's just how many times? I just, as you read these last, these, as you read 15 and 16, you just got to see every effort the Lord is making to try and save as many people as he possibly can. Every warning. I mean, he pours out vials. He sounds out trumpets. He's just trying to save as many. But the key in, you know, in verse six, in chapter 16 is they just won't repent. They just won't let God into their life. Therefore, they have no place in the millennial world that he's trying to create for them. They can't dwell on the sea of glass that he's trying to create. So it's just kind of that last ditch effort to yeah. say, come back and they won't yeah i like that i i think once again with these seven plagues we're referencing again the exodus there's a ton of stuff in there with exodus i mean you've got verse 10 their kingdom is full of darkness over and over again they don't repent verse 11 they have sores we've got the troubling of the waters in verse 4 the waters become blood the idea of the way of the kings of the east prepared verse 12 that's a code word that john's audience would have understand the way of the kings of the East was a metaphor for we're going to have war. I don't, and I'm not going to give specifics on what this stuff means specifically as far as, well, what are the three unclean beasts and what's going on here? 
Um, but just know that it looks like there's a big battle. Verse 14, the kings of the earth and the whole world are gathered to battle. The only place in the standard works where we read Armageddon is verse 16 of chapter 16. And this is a lot to unpack. If you go to Israel, um, north of the city of Jerusalem, there's this beautiful valley and it's a plain and there's all kinds of, you know, you can grow crops there. And there's this old site called Megiddo that, you know, it would be wrecked and then they would build on top of it and then it would get wrecked and they'd build on top of it. And so there's all these layers and it's a, it's a national park in Israel and you can go visit it and it's beautiful and it's a hill and you can see for miles. And in, in most Protestant and even in Latter-day Saint commentary, there is this notion that that's where the final battle is going to be. Now, I'm not going to really be too dogmatic about this. Um, I'm going to give you my opinion. I don't think that's where the battle is going to be. I think that that word has been, it's been interpreted. So that being said, like I said, that's just my opinion, but I will put, it's not in the show notes yet, but I will put in the show notes some really good scholarship by a fellow by the name of Michael Heiser. Uh, he's just, he has impeccable scholarship and an understanding of languages. And if you don't want to read the notes, it's going to be several pages. I'm just going to put it to you this way. Another way to read this is that it's Jerusalem. Now, to an English speaker, you could say, well, what in the heck? How is Armageddon Jerusalem? And so you're going to have to read the show notes if you want to unpack this. Now, if it is Jerusalem, I will say this. Everything else falls into place. All the, the text in Zechariah, and I'm not going to, this isn't going to be an exposition on all this stuff. You're going to have to go home and read it. But my, may I suggest to you listeners that if this is something that you're interested in, I'm just going to throw some texts at you that you may want to just write this stuff down and just spend several hours reading these texts. So here, well, not several hours, several minutes. How about that? Um, okay, you're going to want to read Zechariah 12, 13, 14, for sure those. You're going to want to read Ezekiel 37 which is the Book of Mormon and the two sticks and the, and the bones coming back, Israel coming back, you're going to want to read 38 and 39, those, those three chapters in Ezekiel. So I mentioned Zechariah, I mentioned Ezekiel. You're going to want to read Joel, specifically chapter 2. You're going to want to read section 29. Section 29 of the Doctrine and Covenants is where the Lord says to Joseph Smith, yeah, you remember that guy Ezekiel? Like his stuff matters. You might want to read it. So you might want to read section 29 as a key to unlock Ezekiel, and you're going to want to read section 45. Big picture, like I said, we could spend a lot of time on this. The big picture is there's going to be a battle. It's actually going to happen. Uh, My take on this is the saints are not going to be busy killing people. We're going to be busy building Zion. So the saints don't need to worry, but there is going to be war. It is going to happen. And so these plagues in 16, in my opinion, once again, we're back to the code words, verse 12, the kings of the east Verse 14, the whole war, the whole world is gathered to, to battle. Verse 16, they're going to gather together at that location, which many people say is Armageddon. Uh, and they're going to attack, verse 19, the great city. And it was divided. So lots of stuff happening in here. Um, second coming, war. Uh, sorry, we've got to do a couple more explosions. Look at verse 21. This is the end of 16. There fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. Now, it depends on how you view that, the weight of that talent. But just to throw this at you, a talent was a big deal in the ancient world. It was like government type spending. So just imagine a big brick of gold. That's what the talent was. And they weighed a ton. They weighed like 70 pounds. And so what's going on? My take on that is I think this is a little bit of hyperbole. 
but maybe it isn't. Maybe it is. I don't know. But this idea that the heavens are collapsing on the chaos of the world, that is straight out of um, Exodus 38. That's straight out of the Exodus material. This idea that if you're going to mess with heaven, God's patient, but eventually it's time. Eventually we're just going to have to clear it out. So that is big picture stuff on 16. And I apologize if some of you are like, no, we really wanted you to tell us what the three unclean spirits are. Which political person that we hate is that? And I'm going to say, I don't know. I mean, if you think about it throughout history, we've always interpreted it our own way according to our own time. So anyway, that's my take on 16. And with that, we'll see you next time.